Hello, this is Janet Gowan welcoming you to Love Letters Live. And today's guest is, today's guest's life is a lesson in so many things that I just hope we can cover it all in one Love Letters Live episode here. I want to introduce Steve Taibbi. And Stephen, why don't you, oh, and okay, we, yes, in, in how we address each other, I should really call you emperor, correct? <laughs> I can't get my wife to do it, but I got you to do it. That's great. <laughs> yes, it's it's harder to get wives to do things than strangers. Um, so let me just introduce you. And I, I will say that you are, you've accomplished so much in life. But one of the things that we're going to talk about is the fact that you are a survivor of two heart transplants. Yes. And I understand that your first heart surgery was right after you were born. Yes, I've had a total of four open heart surgeries in my life. Two of them were heart transplants. But um, when I was five and six, I was the first person in the world to survive two operations for ASD repair. And and was, you know, did that change your family? Oh, yeah. Can we talk about, I think that, I think the fear of having a child who we're told may not live has got to be life-changing, disrupting. What did that do to your mother and father, if you know? It was nothing short of a bomb going off in the center of our household. I was five when I got my first diagnosis. And um, what was the first, what was the first diagnosis then that I had that I that I had a, a grossly enlarged heart and then they found out that that was caused because I had um, uh, ASD atrial septum defect which really means back in the day they used to call that a hole in the heart oh. which is a hole between the two walls of the atrium and um, so you know I was given well under a year to live once that was diagnosed and. Um, it just turned my mother in this, into this protective mama bear. Oh, sure. And, and she just went um, completely nuts as far as I was concerned. And she started building a fence around her and me. And she left. She wouldn't let the other members of the family in. And she wouldn't let me out. Oh. It, was very, it was very disruptive. In many ways, she saved my life. But in many ways, she ruined, she ruined the family that, doing that. Is that right? Yeah. That's yeah. so understandable. That is so it is. Yes. Now, what so, you know, one of the things that I know people say about you is that you were were living with an expiration date. Yeah. Many now, times. The truth is we're all living with an expiration date. For most of us, it's kept secret. Apparently it was for you, too. Well, I was told my parents were told twice that I had a year to live uh-huh. and I've been told personally, three times that I had a year to live. So in my lifetime, I've been told five times that I have a year to live. Um, I I always, um, I love my doctors. I love doctors. But when they tell me something like that, I never believe them. I always, I'm always like, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. By the way, that's, that's not up to them to say how long you have to live. Well, usually they're right, but they ran into me and I'm, I have um, a very strong will. And, and ever since the age of five, I realized that I realized at the age of five that I was in this by myself. I mean, I may have been in a hospital, there may have been doctors and nurses, my parents and all that. But when you're alone in the hospital, except for an hour a day with visiting, 
you realize you're doing this by yourself. There's nobody else. And even at the age of five, I realized I was in this by myself. And it was up oh, to so me. You're, you're saying at the age of five, you had an awareness of what was happening to you. Absolutely. How could you not? I mean, you're having major surgery. You're you're watching other children die. You know, you're 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 in this ward with uh, all these children, and uh, things were very different back in the '50s when I was first hospitalized. Sure. And um, and I just came to an awareness that um, it was up to me. Now, at the age of five, I was not very um, competent in, in building my strategies, but I did build a strategy that got me through it. What was the strategy? What was the strategy at age five? Well, today we would call it disassociation. Oh. But at, what I did was I found a cave in my psyche that I climbed into, and when I was in that cave, nothing hurt. They could do whatever they wanted to my body, which they did plenty of things. Um, they could alter my body. They could do all the things they wanted to do, um, and I didn't feel it. Now, did of course. What? Well, did you go through times of actual physical pain recovering from surgery? There must have oh been. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, there were times when disassociation just wouldn't work. Uh-huh. But but for all the times that I did disassociate, for all the times that I, I pushed that pain aside, I didn't realize that I was building my own time bomb for myself, you know, because that pain goes, it goes someplace. Uh-huh. And um, it's literally true that I never cried, not once during those two years when I was five and six getting those operations. Mm-hmm. And it's <clears throat> and it's literally true that I barely spoke at all when I was in the hospital. I just held it all in. I didn't even say ouch. I never even said ouch once when I was in the hospital, no matter and how much they hurt me. You said that that has to come out somewhere. Where did it come out for you? Well, it became... Um, it became a thing where I, I internalized everything and I thought that I was no good. And I thought that everybody would see it. I, 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 the family was falling apart. That was my fault. Everything was my fault. And I, I believe that to the deepest part of me and it turned into um, self-sabotaging behaviors that took me a long time to get a handle on. Apparently you did though. Cause I know that you had your own production company. I mean, you were incredibly productive. You did a lot. How did how did that come about? Can you tell us a little bit about the the television work you did? Um, I love television. Um, when I got into it, I was um, I started my business as a freelancer. I started my business two weeks before I graduated. And um, college, yeah, I graduated at New York Institute of Technology. And, and you were, were you a photographer? What was your I, I was a cameraman. I started out as a gaffer. Oh, you did? You know? Yeah. I mean, I started at the bottom. I started as I started in my internship sweeping floors and coiling cable, you know. And uh, and then when I got to uh, when I got my first gig, um, which was with the AT and T, which was the largest um, studio network in the world at the time. They had seventy studios just in America, and they. Um, that's where I started as far as professional. And, uh, you know, I started uh, being a gaffer, you know. Well, I have a kind of an observation. You can say whether it's right or wrong. But the fact that you were starting at the bottom and sweeping floors was kind of an indication that you knew you had time to rise. 
Yeah, well, um, at that point, when I was starting this, I had an expiration date on me put by the doctors. I had already lived through one. I had a um, near-death, um, I had an NDE, you know, near-death experience on my 17th birthday. And I was told that I wasn't, my parents were told that I wouldn't get past 10. But that thing didn't happen until my 17th birthday. Would you, um, would you tell us what a near-death experience is and feels like? Well, people think, call it an out-of-body experience, mm -hmm. you know, that whole thing. And when I had mine, it was before Kubler-Ross had written her book uh, on death and dying. So everything that I experienced was uh, unique to me in the sense that I'd never heard of a light. I'd never heard of any of the things of rising out of your body. Of, uh, I never heard of any of those things. They just happened to me. And um, in, in, in uh, retrospect, it was the best birthday I ever had. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that birthday. Uh, but it was, um, I mean, did you want me to go through that experience? Is that what you were asking? Yeah, I, I just wanted to know if you wanted to talk about what that was actually like. Well, um, they had given me a drug. I had just, I had just come back from a surgery. Uh, I had just come back from cardioversion, which is where they electrocute you and stop your heart because my heart had, had become, was running rampant. Uh, the, 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 uh, there's a node on your heart that regulates the beating of your heart. And that node was damaged during my second surgery. Oh. So my heart and my heart and my brain had, had disconnected literally. And the heart was just beating on its own. And my normal resting heart rate was over 170. And, and my doctor was saying, my doctor told me to my face, you're lucky if you have a year here and, um, you know, your heart's just going to you know, kill itself. So they did this, they did a uh, catheterization. They found out what the problem was. They found out it was electrical. There was nothing else going on. And they, and they um, put a plate on your chest and a plate on your back mm -hmm. and they zap you and they stop your heart and they wait for a few minutes uh, so that hoping that the brain and the heart node, the, the node on your heart that controls the beating would reconnect. And, and it's, it was also a guess that they could restart me. <laughs> you know? Apparently they did. Sure. And, um, and my heart rate was, was 86, 84 when they restarted me. So they had, it, it had been successful. But then they put me on a drug called quinidine, which was at the time cutting, cutting edge stuff. It's a quinine derivative. Uh -huh. And I had, I was absolutely compliant about taking this drug. Absolutely. And on my 17th birthday, I woke up, I went, I really had slept late and I couldn't, uh, this is all in my book, Grateful Guilt. Yeah. We're and, gonna talk about that. yeah. yeah and, and they, um, and I just couldn't wake up. I finally woke up. My mother thought I was just sleeping late cause I'm, I'm a night owl anyway. And she called me sleepy head and I walked into a wall. Oh. And uh, yeah, and that was my mother. My mother was a nurse. She grabbed me. I almost fainted in her arms. Oh, yeah. She she walked me to to us to the closest chair, and my my pulse was in the forties, and that's dangerous. And she called the doctor. He said he's he's having an allergic reaction to the quinidine. Oh. Um, my mother was ready to just rush me. To, he said, "Don't move him. Put him in bed. Um, if we do anything, it could push him over the edge." So my mother laid me down. And she starts crying. And now I'm comforting my mother and, and all the alarm bells in my head are going off. And I, I, and I um, honestly, to this day, this is one of the biggest miracles of my life. I needed to get rid of my mother because I knew that I was 
about to do battle. I just, I knew it. And I just knew it. Mm-hmm. And um, I needed to get rid of her. I was consoling her. And, uh, right. and so I just finally said something to her. I don't remember what I said. And my mother went, okay, and got up and left. That is a miracle. And, and uh, so shortly after that happened, it was like somebody took a sledgehammer and slammed it in my chest. I jumped up off the bed. It was so hard and so violent. And then there was another one, but each blow was successively a little less. But, you know, I, and I'm laying on the bed and I, and I was like, okay, Stephen, how are you going to get out of this one? This is it. And, um, and then I heard a click and all the pain stopped. Mm-hmm. And at the moment of that click, you know, like in cartoons when things separate, but they go boing, right? That's uh-huh. exactly what it felt like. And next thing I know, I'm looking down at me and me on the bed is looking up at the ceiling, but it oh. sees that I see me. I had two consciousnesses. I had two thought processes and they diverged at a point, but I never lost consciousness, which is an important part of this. Mm-hmm. And I just started rising. I'm rising and rising. And, and it was wonderful. I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. And I was like, oh, all right, if this is death, let's go. I'm fine. You know? And really, I was all, all set to go because it was so peaceful, just uh-huh. so peaceful. And then I went through the ceiling, I went through the roof, and and I could see my mother talking to our neighbor. And um, I, I just and then shortly after I went through the roof, everything I just got enveloped by the blackest black I'd ever seen. And I'm still rising. And then way up to the right, way up to the right is a um, is a light. And it's the brightest light I've ever seen, but so far away that it was gray. If you can imagine that. So it's the brightest light I've ever seen, but it was grayish. And it was just gorgeous. It was, I know all you wanted to do was get to that light. Um, I didn't see a tunnel. Everybody talks about a tunnel. I think, I think well, from my experience, that they must, it must be like when you shine a, a flashlight in a dark thing, it forms its own tunnel. But I didn't see a tunnel. I saw the light. And and next thing I know, I'm slowing down and I know that can't be good. And I'm slowing down. As I'm slowing down, it's getting so cold. First of all, it was the blackest black I've ever been in. I mean, if you could bury me in a box underground and this would be blacker. And the cold was the coldest cold I've ever experienced. And, um, and by the way, I don't talk about this that often. I, this might be the first time I'm talking about this in six or seven years. And um, and I'm noticing how cold it is. And then I'm noticing that it's crowded. I mean, like crowded, like everybody's like this. Now I can't see anything, but I could feel everything. Mm-hmm. And I could tell that there were people all around me, surrounding me like a Japanese commuter train. And, um, and everybody's teeth are chattering from how cold it is, but nobody has teeth. I mean, it was the weirdest, you know, it's just telling you how it was. And, mm-hmm. um, and now I'm like, I'm thinking back to, you know, people have, the, the word hell is a Greek word. And, um, and that, that uh, word means absence of light. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly, and then, you know, I'm thinking about parts of the Bible that I've read where the gnashing of teeth. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the gnashing of teeth. Really? I yeah. Never that. What? I never heard that. You never heard? Oh, trust me, it's in there. And so I'm going, this is the gnashing of teeth. It's ice cold. It's horrible. And I'm like, is this hell where you get to see this light that you want to get to, but you're stuck here in this cold blackness with, the, with all these people who are suffering? 
And I'm like, what the heck did I do? I'm only 17. <laughs> you know, I hadn't done, I certainly hadn't murdered anybody, you know, when I couldn't understand why I was there. And then I felt a parting of ways, you know, like a way a cop can move through a crowd it was like that. And something, something came up to me. And this is the thing I've always described it this way in a voice I never heard before, but I recognized came up to me and felt like it put its hand on my shoulder, even though I didn't have a shoulder. And, and it's really pleasant, sonorous voice said, no, go back. You're not ready yet. That's oh. the quote. Oh. Right. And, and the part of me that was on the bed, because I somehow communicated to the part of me that was on the bed that I had to go back. That part of me was blissful too. And, I actually out loud said, oh, blank, because I didn't want to go back. And, and then, and I, I owe this, I think, to divine inspiration, divine intervention, whatever you want to call it. How was I supposed to get myself started again? My mm -hmm. arms were at my sides. And, and, and the only thing I could think of doing, that I, the only thing I could think of to do, I flung my arms across my chest as, as hard as I could. It was the last moment. It was the only thing I had left in me. And next thing I know, I heard my heart beat. Now, my, my blood had been stasis for quite a while. I don't know how long, but it was a while. And that first heart pump, every, every cell of my body felt that. And it was like, ah, you know. So that, that's when you knew you were back in your own well, every With every pump, you know, it was very irregular. With every pump, I came lower. Pump, oh, Everyone kept, I kept getting alone until there was my mother talking to Mr. Lewis again. And there was um, my ceiling. Then I went through it. And then I went face to face with me. And then I heard that click and I was whole again. Oh. Now I tested this with my mother and I said to her, were you in the backyard? Now you cannot see where my mother was from that room. Uh -huh. And I said, were you in the backyard? And she goes, yes. I go, were you talking to Mr. Lewis? Yes. Was he wearing madras shorts, a polo shirt, and sandals with socks? Yes. Was he holding a hedge clipper? Yes. That's how I knew that it really happened. Well, it, it, yes, I can understand. That's how you knew it really happened. There's too many mysteries in life. Now, you've, you have a, an audio book. Yes. Right? Called, you tell us. Grief, <clears throat> grateful guilt, living in the shadow of my heart. And we can, how can, your, your whole experience is in this book. And I'm, I'm gathering that you did this for the sake of others. Yes. That was really the reason for, for writing the book. Um, I used my story as an analogy. Um, it's my whole, I mean, including all the bullying and everything, everything with the family. Because um, I'm trying, uh, you know, when people in a family, so someone's a person in a family suffers a profound illness, uh -huh. such as mine. It it affects the entire family, and it affects each person differently. The, the The person who's sick is affected, and the people who are around that person are affected, but they're all affected differently. Yeah. And it was my hope that by writing down my experiences and by saying how I cope with them. Other people could be at least aware of them. And, and, you know, I started out really developing strategies to survive with. And I think that people go into hospitals or get sick and feel very helpless. 
and don't understand the internal power that they have. Okay, I'm, that's good. I'm nothing special. I, I, I'm nothing special. I just happen to figure this out. That's all. So I'm hoping that if you're a, a person with a, a person who's sick, that you can you can read this book and it'll help you understand the way the person who's sick is. That if you're the sick person, that you'd read this book and understand how your family is reacting, but also what you can do to save your own life. Now, I I list, you know, I, I give all my strategies from how I survived, how I got rid of, how I, I um, beat bullies finally, all the things that I've done in my life, I've always used strategies. And I'm not saying that somebody should use my strategies. I'm just hoping that by reading what my strategies were, they would they may go, oh, I could use this of, of their own making, just to give them the idea that well, they can do that. I'm wondering if, you know, part of the benefit of your book, you talk about families being hurt by this, that that parents could maybe see that um, the, the pressure and the anger that they're feeling and the torment doesn't need to rip them apart. Right. That exactly. And and a lot of this, this is going to be tough to say, but it's I'm going to say it because it's true. Please. A lot of times parents will overindulge a child who's sick. Yes. Or and 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 um and, and like my mother did my father uh, you know ignore him and his needs for yeah. me. Yes. And that's not far. And so you can imagine the resentment my father had towards me and my siblings had towards me. Mm -hmm. And I thought I always thought it was understandable because I had the resentment towards my mother too, you know. Right. But the reality is that when people get like that, they're really honestly not doing it for the person who's sick. They're doing it for themselves. Sure. That's the reality. And people who people who overindulge their children, which is a rampant nowadays, and people who who um who do those kind of things and, and act like it's their own self-sacrifice. No, you're doing that for your own benefit. Let me ask you something. How at what point after this? So so you went on to live, you worked in many TV shows that we all know about, right? Yeah. And um, why don't you say a couple of what they are? You know, the reason I'm asking you this to look at you, I don't know what I expected, but you look like such a robust, healthy person. Well, I eat right. I exercise an hour a day. You know, I just turned 69. Wow. And nobody, no doctor, no, nobody I ever went to school with ever thought I, you know, I went to my 30th anniversary and people <laughs> literally were like, you're alive, literally. So, um, you know, because I had that that thing when I was 17, when I was in the 11th grade. Well, so, but, you know, you, you've, I'm guessing you, you know, you have the benefit of, as you say, a very strong will, ways of kind of ensuring your own survival, at least day by day, and a brilliant medical team. Oh, yeah. I, I've had some, I've, I really have had great doctors. I've been very fortunate. So at what point did it was, were you told that you needed to have a heart transplant, heart replacement? Oh man, that's, that was a tough one because, um, well, you know, I, I had the same doctor since I was 16 and he was the first one to tell me to my face that I had a year to live. That was before that incident when I was 17. If you didn't, if you didn't have the transplant. No, this is way before the transplant. Oh, okay. The transplant wasn't, my first transplant wasn't until I was 37. Oh my goodness. Okay. So yeah. how did that, how did you come about knowing that you needed that? Well, um, 
I, I had this doctor, I could tell, he, you know, and he had told me, he had told me uh, that I had a year to live. Then after I, I survived that thing when I was 17, he told me I'd be lucky if I got out of my 20s, the same doctor. And um, <laughs> here I was, I was on um, 33, almost 34. And he says to me, I don't know how you did it, but your EKG is indistinguishable from somebody, from a normal person. He said, you beat it. Go out and live. That's what he said to me. And you got so married. I, you got, you're married, right? I am married. Yeah. I got married late though, because I was enjoying myself. Anyway, so, Good for you. <laughs> I know. Um, we both got married late. Um, both our first marriage. We're, this month is 31 years for us. Next week, as a matter of fact, will be 31 years for us. But um, so uh, I went out and bought a, a, a glider at, to celebrate my 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 health. Um, uh -huh. And um, but and then I got married when I was 37. And and just a few years later, like like nine, eight years, I started to decline and I couldn't figure out what it was. I went for tests. They, they ruled out my heart. Uh-huh. And, and um it turned out that it was my heart and my heart was um had caught a virus. Oh. So it had nothing to do with my childhood, it had nothing to do with my my previous operations. I just had caught a virus and it was killing my heart. And which is not as uncommon as you would think it is. And um that's why I lost my heart, having nothing to do. Oh my god. What? I, that's surprising, of course. Right. And I, I, I always look at that as that's a real lesson in life because, you know, God laughs at, at plans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and plans, God laughs. I've heard that. God, and and uh, who was it um, who said that, you know, uh, God is a comedian, but playing to an audience that's too scared to laugh. Uh -huh. And frankly, I thought that was hilarious. I really did. I, I, I got the joke. I thought it was hilarious. But now I'm being told I have a year to live because I need a new heart. And um, I was at, um, it was called North Shore Long, in Long Island uh, at the time. My wife was there as a nurse. She's a chemo nurse there. Mm -hmm. And I was going to their top guy. And he said, oh, you have 10 years. And um, and my wife didn't believe him and I didn't believe him. And my wife called a friend of hers who used to work with her, who was now working for one of the finest doctors in heart failure in the, in the world. Her name is Donna Mancini. And she's, she was at the time at Columbia. And I went to see her. And after we said hello to each other, she looked at me. These are her first words to me her, um, after she said hello. She said, um, you were told you have about 10 years. I said, yeah. She goes, you're lucky if you have one. Oh, my goodness. She's a very blunt woman. <laughs> She's the best, though. I love Donna. Man, I love her. Um, best doctor. Best, best doctor. I'm alive because of her. And um, seriously, I just love her. And Let me and ask she, you. We're going to, you know, we're going to run. You have more to say than we can do in one episode. And I'm just wondering, because I want to get to the complexities of the actual transplant and your relationship with sure. two donors. May I just invite you to come back to do another one? Absolutely. I would love that. And we're going to just, you know, we're just going to be so informed by all you have said. I do want to 
get to the importance of letter writing. And But I wanted to mention two things that you had said that I found so interesting. And that is, you know, tips for how to get through this. And one of the things you said was that you should wear your own clothes in the hospital. Yes, absolutely. Was so interesting because you know the first thing, and you have to give up everything and turn in everything, and you're just a naked human being in a hospital, Johnny, with no real identifying, uh, you know, marks. Nothing to make you a person. That's right. You've been kind of stripped of your humanity. Yes. Leaves you vulnerable to other people's needs and plans. Right, and so you have to wear. You have to wear a shirt like this, a button-down shirt that they can get to easily. And yeah. I would wear like like sweat bottoms. Uh-huh. Right? And and I had a doctor in, in Cedar Sinai tell me, he said, you know, I want to do a study on this because he goes, because you're right. Pa- patients who um who wear street clothes get treated differently than patients who wear hospital gowns. Really? Because th- there's a subconscious thing. Oh, here's a person. You know? Oh, isn't that okay? That is so worth everybody's knowing. Absolutely. You go okay. into the hospital, you wear your own clothes. There are certain times when you can't. Sure. But if you're in a regular hospital room, if they can get access to you as easily as they could if you had a gown, they have no problem. That's a good point. Okay. I like that. And the other thing is, you talk about being nice to absolutely everybody. Yes. It's a big key. It's a big key. Every single person who comes into your room is helping save your life. Whether they're whether it's the um, the janitor, whether it's the woman who comes in to clean up the beds after the other person leaves, whether it's the person delivering your food, the phlebotomist, the X-ray techs, the nurses, the doctors, or anybody who comes into your room. If ask people- them their ask them their names. Yes. Ask about their families. Yes. Get to know them. So ask about their families, you know, you're establishing kinship. Yes. And now they want to. So instead of instead of being the jerk who starts yelling, do you know who I am? And you know, uh, well, uh-huh. and, I, and I've heard a lot of that in the hospitals. I'm like, man, you're a moron. You know, <laughs> or, or a woman, point. you're a moron. Because yeah. how much do you think they want to work on you now? <laughs> right? You want to make it so they want to help you. That's yes. the secret. Make it so they want to help you. They want you to live. They want you to live. Yeah. Yes. Make well, your room the room they look forward to going into. That is so smart and so nice. Yes, it's so nice. And it's so pleasant. And then, you know, I had nurses at the, on the late shifts coming in, talking to me about their boyfriends and about, oh, I mean, it was wonderful. unbelievable. They would come in, the male <laughs> nurses would come in and tell me about their new BMW. I mean, it was like, you know, they just wanted to talk. Oh, that's, that's just so, that's just so critical and so important. It's such a beautiful thing to hear. Well, I want to thank you for doing this with me today. Oh, sure. I, I enjoyed it. And I want to, um, thank you. I want to tell everyone who's listening and watching and seeing this, that we will be back soon for another, for part two of the story, which is the actual transplant. Why two of them? And um, yes, the relationship, some really interesting things about the relationship between you and I'm guessing both donors. Okay, we have a lot more to talk about. We'll be back soon. Thank you, dear. I look forward to seeing you again and just may you live to 120. Thank you so much. And you too. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I'm hoping to join that small group. (laughs) 
Okay, thank you. I'll talk to you very soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, dear.